out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastorm. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the musician Susan Stenger, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and much, much more. Anyway, this is the interview. She was, um, yes, a member of Band of Susans. Yes, that band who were on Blast First and various other labels during the late 80s and into the 90s. But she's gone on to do lots of other work, as you'll find out in this very interesting and long interview. So we had a long chat to begin with, which was fascinating, but been edited. And then I was talking about a piece that I'd seen her do in 2013. It was 31 minutes and it was quite a vocal piece. And um, I was talking about that, and then to, uh, then she picks up the story, and then it's basically into the interview. So sit back and enjoy. Yeah, that that was an installation piece that I did that was there for a month, and it was in the um, a kind of covered entranceway to the Civic Center in Newcastle. So and it had it had pillars all around, but it had a kind of uh, domed ceiling over, over yes. the entranceway which which had really interesting acoustical properties and i think it was supposed to be so that the when the mayor came in entered officially entered the civic center then he, the piper who was supposed to pipe the mayor in would stand there and reverberate in this fantastic little sheltered spot so I did a, um, this was the AV Festival. Yes. Paul and I both worked with the AV Festival for three different festivals. It was every two years when we were we were involved in 2010, 2012, and 2014. Right. It was really, really um, important for me because each year I kind of escalated my involvement. <laughs> yeah. And um, was asked to do my own installations, whereas the first year was a collaborative work that involved um, Alan Moore, Ian Sinclair, um, Mufti from Neubauten was the percussionist, and uh, it was it was film and music and so on. But the in 2012, which is what you're talking about, I was asked to do my own sound installation, and that was called Full Circle, and it was sort of based on the circle of fourths in western music the way harmony works by kind of moving from one chord and to another fourth away and sort of all around the circle so you get back where you started and i made that last over a period of six hours of building up a chord and then morphing into a another chord and um so it was a it was a cycle. It was based on natural cycles, so that it was outside and you could see the the cycle of day and night and the seasons because it started in the beginning of March and ended at the end of March. So as the month went on, you could see uh, little flowers coming up in the lawn around there and bunny rabbits hopping around. So you're getting the sense of time passing in all sorts of different superimposed cycles. Right, yes. Um, And it was kind of, it was the year, it was 100 years from John Cage's birth, 
because he was born in 1912, and it was 20 years since his death. And he was a huge influence on me um, you know, way before Ben of Susan's, my sort of intro into music was studying the classical flute, but with an interest in experimental music. And I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which was a big center for experimental music at the time I was in high school. So I was really exposed to Cage and uh, Morton Feldman and also the media studies center there, experimental filmmakers, Tony Conrad. That was all kind of my teenage years. So anyway, I, I wanted to do something as kind of an homage to Cage. Right. It's about it was kind of about the yin yang and the I Ching. There was there was a a cycle within the I Ching that has to do with the passage of the seasons. That was part of it. And um, also, he always said that he didn't understand Western harmony. I think Schoenberg said that to him. You're 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 interesting, but you don't understand harmony. And he kind of grasped that and sort of embraced that for the rest of his career, thinking, yes, you're right, I don't I don't understand harmony, I'm not interested in it. <laughs> but so this was a, a way to kind of think about Western harmony almost as this kind of object that I could explore without actually using it in the conventional sense. And also uh, thinking about Cage's interest in Zen and um, um, sound versus silence, which was super important to him, because in a sense there is no such thing as perfect silence. So when my my piece was always kind of building up, and then to a full chord, and then slowly subtracting notes then and fading down. So there was this kind of eaching balance between my deliberate sound and the ambient sound all around, the buses going by and birds chirping and whatever. So there was this con constant kind of uh, shift between the, the yin of the background sound and the yang of my sound, always kind of cycling and in balance yes and did you and did you because at the beginning there you, you sort of mentioned about march starting and finishing in march and the seasons so did your work also embrace that sort of the spiritual kind of path of of the year the sort of the beginning the sort of the spring the yeah. summer the autumn was that also part of what sort of fed with uh, fed into the piece that you were doing it did because it it that was one of the other cycles, the kind of cycle of the seasons, and as I went around the circle of fourths, I changed the instrument that was the basis of the chord. So in springtime, I guess it was uh, woodwinds, and then it went to. Uh, Brass, no, string, no, brass, brass in the summer, and then um, uh, strings in the autumn, and then voice in the winter. So there was that cycle as well of instruments as you went all the way around the, the circle of force. So right. it, was all, it was all cycles superimposed. Yes. I, I mean, it's an incredibly elaborate diagram 
with all these things represented, which I can send you in case you want to ponder that someday. <laughs> yes, well, it's always interesting because, because I, you know, because this area, you know, we have quite a few people who lead choirs, and you might have come across a couple of them, or at least one, because I think they also, or she also performed in Newcastle, possibly around that time, the big, uh, is it Big Sky or The Voice Project, Sean Cruz. So, um, so I think they had performed in Newcastle at one stage, but there was a lot of kind of those pieces that brought in sort of outside performance kind of responding to the environment that they were in, but also bringing in other elements, sometimes North American traditions and sometimes Taze singing, as well as just kind of working with, with the natural world and, and what noises were already there. And also depending on the uh, time of year as well to um, try and sort of have that relationship with um, bringing it all together in one holistic kind of experience, really, for the people doing it and the people... Um, remarking on that was a special performance but normally it was just the there was a circle of speakers under this dome and people could just was on all day and people could just walk in the middle of the sound as they felt or walk past it or sit there for a while. One guy brought some bongos and sat in the middle of it and played bongos <laughs> during it. But this performance with um, me and Attila, who, if do you know his, his no. work? He sang with, uh, a lot with Sono, with Son, I guess you pronounce it. He, he has this incredibly deep voice, you know, and he... he he sings kind of like death metal, but he, he did these just singing drones with me, and we walked we walked around the the circle during one cycle of of this, which was half an hour, and kind of interacted with it. But that that was a special performance. Yes, my goodness. So just going back slightly to to the early years, you mentioned John Cage, but sort of I suppose without giving too much away, I was born sixty four, so I'm in my late fifties now. And so my early kind of musical moments uh, came came with the kind of glam world of Sweet and Slade and T Rex and Gary Glitter, which is unfortunate. But luckily, David Bowie was the kind of first, you know, single and first love, really, which was quite lucky. Did you have a, a similar experience where something sort of triggered an emotional moment that um, oh, set you oh, on I the had, path? I had many of them, but um, I was born in 55. So um, I, I actually wrote about this a little bit in the wire um once you know that back page epiphanies yes kind of talked about my early years and there wasn't just one event but i i i mentioned um getting making my first communion because i was brought up catholic till i was about 10 and then abandoned and all but um i did make my first communion so when you do that, you, you're you supposed to, uh, you know, open yourself to the Holy Spirit and get enlightened or something. And I was kind of hoping for, I was ready for something interesting to happen, but it didn't. <laughs> but um, you also get lots of gifts from your relatives and uh, the, the main 
two wonderful things that I got were a, a flashlight, a brownie scout flashlight, which I could use to read under the covers at night. Which right. I was very happy about. Yes. And then the other thing was a transistor radio. This completely changed my life because this was, what, 1963. Right. Up until then, my kind of musical context or world was theme songs from TV shows. You know, I had my favorites. And uh, my mother was always playing the radio in the kitchen, which was Frank Sinatra and stuff like that, which I quite quite liked. But So this, this was my surroundings you know i had certain uh, like walt disney tunes i really liked like too many crickets singing when you wish upon a star that was a big favorite right um, and then my great-grandfather from scotland had a few songs that he always sang when he got drunk you know <laughs> there were kind of favorite things like that but i didn't have my own music until i got this radio which was like this like magic you know, think I could dial up, I could go off on my own and listen to, you know, suddenly it was like the animals. and Yes, um, the kinks. So many great things that, you know, that was just mine. You know, I, I discovered what I liked and what, what I didn't like. So it was like the first time I really had a sense of, oh, I, I really like that. I really like vibrate to that. There's something special to me. And that I could do without. So you're sort of developing your sense of self, really, through through music. That and um, you know there were some sappy things I liked, like the Everly Brothers. I remember really loving Dream. <coughs> Dream. Yes. Well, you know that's that's very hard not to love. I mean, I had a similar experience. I remember my mum used to play Radio Two a lot, which was kind of quite light and fluffy. But they, there was people like the Carpenters and Burt Bacharach, which I have to say had a huge influence on me because I thought lyrically they were just stunning. You know, I thought to they hear were. those hear those songs I hate at the time. You know, because I was at sort of the punk rock age by then, but. But I much later I realized how great they were. They were great but, songs. Um, yeah. So when I was a kid, it was like uh, I remember um, loving the animals. I got to get out of this place. I remember um, Leslie Gore. This it's my party, and I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> that was big. Um, I don't. It was a sense of independence that I remember feeling as I discovered what I liked in mu music was really important to me um I had never occurred to me that I would make music particularly and we didn't have any instruments in the house oh right I thought you were going to say your parents were musically they had the flute or they had the cello or something like that sitting yeah, there my parents couldn't I mean when we sang happy birthday on people's birthdays my parents couldn't even carry a tune you know neither of them were they even at all. savaged they even savaged the song <laughs> but my mother uh, my mother was uh, had gone to art school and trained to be an art teacher and she also when I was that age my parents had very little money my father was in law school my mother was just you know trying to budget and keep us 
in food and you know we didn't have any money to spare really but on, on Saturdays my father would take us to the library which was free entertainment and yes get his we, you were allowed to get six books and I would usually have my six books read by about Tuesday <laughs> and be anxiously waiting and then on Sundays my mother would take us to the Albright Knox Art Museum which is brilliant museum in Buffalo that has a great collection of modern art. Blimey. And that was her, her interest was kind of post-war modern art. So she would take us and we'd walk around and look at the paintings and would say, she, she, was, she was always telling us, these paintings don't have to be a picture of something. Like she would always tell us, you know, you don't have to draw a picture of something. It can be just color and form and look at this Jackson Pollock and, you know, she would take us around and we'd just talk about things like, like that. Like yes. And, and which, so... Which was very forward thinking, I mean, especially Jackson Pollock. I would imagine most, most parents would have been shocked and said, I could have done that, but she was obviously... She was very, you know, she, she knew what she liked and that was what she was really interested in was kind of post, post-war um, abstract painting. So, um, so I, I was exposed to that, and it, at some point, I think when I got a bit older, she did buy me lots of beautiful oil paints and things, you know, thinking maybe I would follow in her footsteps. But I felt totally paralyzed with these, like all these beautiful supplies and clean white paper, and I was I couldn't do anything with it. But um, Somehow, you know, when I started thinking about making things using sound, that was that that I felt free doing that. But I, in many ways, I feel like my mother taught me about composition. She, you know, I never studied musical composition. I studied I studied art history and I studied uh, classical flute, um, and. When, it, when I finally came to the point much later when I started making my own compositions, I really think it was my mother's training or example that, that I kind of drew on to think about how to compose something, how to make something. And, and very often I would almost think of it visually. How, how did it work? Yes. And, in the given amount of time that you may be going to make something that's three minutes or 10 minutes or 20 minutes, what will happen and how will it be, how will it be shaped and what will the texture be and that kind of thing. I almost could draw it. Yes. So, so when... um, I, I told my mother much later, I said she taught me to be a composer. <laughs> <laughs> I bet she didn't see that one coming, did she? No, she, well, she was quite pleased anyway, but, um, but I, you know, I, I grew, so I grew up loving rock music and pop music, but then we moved to the suburbs where you could actually learn to play an instrument in school. Right. For free, you know, and um, I had already shown, I suppose I'd shown a little bit of, that I had an ear because my grandmother had a piano and I would go there and play expressionistic things, you know, and pick out tunes and things. And uh, 
So when we started, when I started in this new school when I was 11, you could choose an instrument if if you wanted to be in the band or learn an instrument. Yes. I really wanted to pick the cello. I really wanted to learn the cello. I liked really deep sounding things and kind of mournful. I, I just liked the idea of it. But of course that got mixed because then you had to get a lift to school every day and we only had one car and um, you know, it took up a lot of space and we had a really small house. So I got told I was going to learn the flute because that's <laughs> easy, <laughs> easy to carry and didn't sound really horrible when you were learning how to play like a violin. <laughs> yes, this is true. So, so I, I thought flute was kind of stupid and girly and I didn't really want to, you know, I, I, uh, I later, you know, wouldn't use that term girly, but at the time it was, a, it was an insult that I embraced. Yes, well, it's easy. So that was 66, 67 time, your flute, which obviously comes in much, which comes in very handy when you did your John John Cage piece in, was it 2000, 2011, I remember. I watched that too. But then, so how did, when you got to 16, this is the early 70s, did you stay on at school and go to college or university or did you sort of decide to leave yeah. at that stage? Most Most Americans will finish what we call high school, which is through age 18. Um, not many people leave at 16 like they do in Britain. Um, but by then, by the time I was about 16, I had discovered, of course, even earlier than that, I got fed up with playing whatever you had to play to be in the school band or orchestra. And I was always trying to figure stuff out on the flute. You know, I would listen to Jethro Tull and how does he make that sound? Like, how does he sort of sing and, you know, play the flute at the same time? And I was, I would sit in my bedroom and listen over and over and go, you know, and learn how to do that. And uh, I would listen to Herbie Mann records and learn the solos off of it. You know, I was always trying to get out of the trap of just learning the little tunes they taught us in school. Yes. So I do that. And then I started playing in a, a, a kind of, weddings and proms and dances band that I got recruited for because someone had heard me play. So I just started doing that to make make money. But then I had to, I had to play Carpenter's songs and, um, you know, kind of jazzy flute stuff and things like that, which was interesting because I learned how to improvise. Yes. But right about when I was about 16... Um, I started to notice this whole scene at the University of Buffalo, which was about a mile up the road from where from my high school. And there was just this, just coincidentally and lucky for me, a really interesting experimental music scene. And there was a, a program there where they would invite composers and performers from all around the world to come and do residencies. And... Um, Lucas Foss, who is quite famous now, but he was the conductor of the Buffalo Philharmonic, and he was a really uh, a big supporter of contemporary music. And so Morton Feldman was one of the composers on the faculty at the university, and he was a close associate of Cage's, and so Cage was always coming, Merce Cunningham was coming, to Buffalo and doing performances with Cage. And so I just started going to all these concerts and 
realizing there was whole world music that maybe it was some way that I could use the flute that wasn't that that I'd be interested in. Mm. So um, that that was a big moment for me, and there was a there was a, a chamber group there led by this guy Peter Kotik K O T I K from Czechoslovakia, and he was a, a flautist as well. And so I I met him and I asked if he would give me private lessons, and I started studying with him. Blimey, that is such a great grounding. This is this is and just yeah, it was, it was great. And then he said, "Well, if you really want to do this and play this, you still need to get like pristine classical training. You can't just play John Cage, you know, not really having the classical training. Um, so you should go and study with my old teacher in Prague, which of course was tricky at the time because the Russians had just invaded a few years before. <laughs> it was the Prague Spring in 1968, so this was in like the early 70s. Um, but eventually, I won't tell you the whole story, but I did get to go there sort of through a back door by going there as a tourist and then auditioning for the music academy and then getting accepted and then eventually convincing the government to give me a student visa. But there weren't any other Americans there studying. Yes. How did you get on with the language? I Well, I had I got on with it by having to learn it because I couldn't talk to anyone <laughs> if I didn't. You know, there were a few, uh, very few people spoke English and the flute teacher I ended up studying with who was first flutist in the Czech Philharmonic and was kind of grown up in the country and did not speak any English. Um, we just kind of communicated by, you know, more spiritual means, I guess. Wow, wow. that must have been, and, and at such a young age as well, that must have been quite a... It was about 19. It, it was an age when you, uh, you think, go to Prague, great behind the iron curtain you know fantastic you know it'll be like being on mars or something yes and i'll have to learn czech if i get in no problem you know i just it just didn't phase me i just so much wanted to have an adventure and i also was kind of obsessed with kafka at the time so you know prague was really exciting to go to um there was a woman whose job it was to accompany all the flute students this was kind of the equivalent of graduate school, mm. post-conservatory. So there were only about eight flute students in my year. And her job was to accompany us on piano in our master classes and stuff. And she spoke French, and I, I had high school French, so we kind of communicated a bit. God, bingo. But, until I um, learned some Czech, but I'd say I went there in October, and by Christmas I could, I could get along. Got us. So how long were you in Czechoslovakia for? Two years. Wow. So that took you up to twenty-one. So by then, we're sort of trucking up to the sort of the mid, the mid seventies. Did did you um did you? It's your life. <laughs> it is. Uh, did did you sort of explore any more parts of um? Czechoslovakia other than Prague or go outside Czechoslovakia at all? Oh, yeah. I, I traveled all over um, 
Czechoslovakia and went to Poland and in the summer I went to spent a lot of time in Paris um, and then after the second year uh, my friend Robert Poss who who uh, was my cohort in Band of Susans he he and I went to high school together he was my high school sweetheart so after my second year, which was in 1977, the summer of 77 is when I left Prague. He came over and met me, and then we hitchhiked all around Scandinavia and took a ferry from Bergen, Norway, to Newcastle, and then a bus to Edinburgh so we could buy God Save the Queen because we knew we couldn't buy it in... England because it was banned so so we went to Scotland first so we could buy it <laughs> <laughs> so, so I came out of this, this really hermetically sealed kind of uh, behind the Iron Curtain world where um, you know you couldn't buy lettuce and um, everybody you know, wanted to buy the jeans yes that I was and, you know, it was it was just a very, very strange, strange world compared to what I'd grown up with and went straight into the sex business. Yes. Well, that, that's quite, that's that's a lot for your young brain to sort of be navigating both emotionally and spiritually. So did you stay in Edinburgh for very long or did you just buy the, the single? Well, we, we just we bought this bus pass that allowed us to travel around for two weeks and we ended up in London and then we went back and I, I moved to New York. Um, I finished, quickly finished um, an American um, university degree, but was living in the New York area and just so I would have a, an American degree and just started working with different experimental composers downtown new york yes that became my my life and really through the my 20s then i that's what i did i played i worked with this composer phil niblock familiar with him no you should you should google him i should i will google him so phil um, p-h-i-l-l niblock n-i-b-l-o-c-k he was a he is one of the major influences of my life. He works, he's a, he's a filmmaker and photographer, but his compositions all work with drones. Right. And um, they're all based on drones, but he doesn't use conventional tuning. So he doesn't use uh, like Western tuning. He doesn't use just intonation like Lamont Young or the, the, that school of, of drone composer, he, he uses the entire spectrum of frequencies. So he might make a piece where you're just playing pitches that are all kind of really long tones all around, say, what we would consider the pitch mm -hmm. D. But they would be like a few hertz sharp, a few hertz flat and you know very very subtle differences 
so that um, when those are combined with other tones, it's the, the, they create what's called difference in combination tones in the room. They vibrate against each other. And um, he would use uh, these big speakers in all four corners of his loft space. And so not only was the music coming out of the speakers, but it, it was kind of meeting in the middle and creating new overtones, um, really low tones and really high tones that, were, that weren't on the tape. They were just created in the space. So like the actual space was participating in the, the creation of the piece. And then um, the performer would walk around the space and also play long tones and kind of affect the, the, the sonic architecture that way. And um, he did a, a flute piece for me back in the 1980, I think it was. Right. His first, it was called Four Full Flutes and it was all flute drum pieces. And meanwhile, my, my former flute teacher, Peter Kotyuk, he had moved to New York and he had started a chamber group there, and I became a member of that group, the SEM Ensemble. And we were always playing in the kitchen um, and different art galleries, and there was a whole scene of music and art kind of. Well, combined. yes. Did you um? Did you also sort of? Take in the the kind of I suppose what would one would call this sort of the new wave scene of New York during that yeah. the post punk period with you know the stuff on Z Records and you know the stuff that was happening in in sort of Max's and also CBGB's and the Mud Club were they also things that you were kind of interested in as well? Sure, but um, I didn't uh, as a performer I hadn't gone there yet. I was I was doing this experimental music scene, and I was worked with different composers: Yoshi Wada, Philip Corner, Jackson McGlow. Um, there was a whole scene that that I I was kind of very much part of. And then I would go to go to gigs, of course, and be aware of this other stuff that was going on. Yes. And then I went away for two years to live in on the west coast and when i came back that was when robert and and i and ron spitzer who we also went to high school with who was our oldest friend the three of us were very very close friends from about 14 or 15. he became the drummer robert was kind of conceptually you know the the founder of band of susans mm. and played guitar and kind of came up with this sense of how the arrangements would work in this sort of layered way, layered minimalist way. And I became the bass player because it was as far away from flute as I, I could get. <laughs> I, was, I always wanted to play bass, always. Right. Uh, to me, bass was like sort of magic instrument because it could be a rhythm instrument, a harmony instrument, or a melody instrument or all at once. And um, so I, I claimed being the bass player. And when I, when I came back from the West Coast, I was also playing guitar with Reese Chatham. Are you familiar with him? No. He, Reese, R-H-Y-S, C-H-A-T-H-A-M. 
Chatham. Oh, he, he produced you one of your. Heard of yes, he produced one of your records, didn't he? He didn't produce it, but he we we covered one of his his most important uh, composition, I think, called Guitar Trio. We mm -hmm. covered on the work flesh, and Robert and I, and and for a while Ron as well, were all in his his band, and he had a band with six guitars, bass, and drums. Right. And if he he was from the kind of experimental downtown scene like I was, except that he was now com composing for electric guitar and playing at CBGB's. This was this kind of crossover stuff. And then Glenn Bronco started doing the same. And then they almost had this competition who would could have the most guitars <laughs> in their band. <laughs> I mean, eventually there's like a hundred guitars. I'm going to have a, do a gig with a hundred guitars and, and um, so we we played with Reese and toured around Europe with him and kind of overlapped a bit with the founding of Band of Students, which was kind of taking some of those same concepts of overtones, very, very simple harmonic structures, but sort of building these layers and layers of overtones and driving it with rhythm. Yes. And, and except that with Band of Students, we wanted to um, add vocals. We wanted to make songs rather than four-minute compositions. We, we, we wanted to see if we could take those kinds of materials and approaches and make it our own and, and write pop songs, rock songs. So that's, that's kind of how it started. Yeah, I did sort of so, watch. I think it was on YouTube. I brought these... We had similar interests, except I came from, I kind of pursued the experimental stuff, although he was very aware of that, and he kind of pursued the, the rock, the kind of punk stuff, although he was very aware of the cage stuff, and then eventually we sort of met in the middle, and that's what what formed Band of Susan's yes. kind of mind sensibilities. And what, I mean, what, you must have had quite a profound moment then on the West Coast for those two years to sort of come back to have, you know, quite a change of your kind of musical direction. Did you, um, was that a, quite an important period, those two years in the sort of early, mid-80s? Uh, I suppose so. I mean, I, I went there just, you know, for the most mundane of reasons. My My boyfriend at the time went there to study medicine and I stayed in New York and after a while I I missed him too much and I also thought it'd be fun to get out of New York for a while because I knew it was a finite amount of time yes so I moved out there and, and I had uh, I started composing my own music when I was out there and collaborating with different people there and I also kind of felt I didn't want to just be a performer anymore and um, wanted to play a different instrument. And Robert and Ron had had a, a more kind of, I suppose you could call it conventional punk band um, before that. And that was, that was petering out and they were wanted to do something new. And so somehow all these things just kind of gelled when I came back to do Band of Susans. Yes. Before I went out to um, the West Coast, I kind of had this 
really important experience of the, the group I was in, the SEM Ensemble that was directed by Peter Kochik. We celebrated Cage's 70th birthday. So that was 1982, he was 70, by doing a really big series of concerts at the Whitney Museum and various other art museums around the East Coast and then touring Europe. And it was a really uh, important thing for me because I worked, was able to really consult Cage and talk to him a lot about developing, how to, how to develop the performances of, of these works. One was called Songbooks, which is really kind of a complex series of instructions and concert for piano and orchestra, another really important piece. It, it was a really key period for me. And I think when I finished that and stayed in New York for the Cage's birthday celebrations, then I kind of felt now it's time to do something else. And that's when I went out to the West Coast. And so when I came back to New York, I was felt really like fresh and ready to do something different. Yes. I mean, in this country, the UK, I mean, the music scene had sort of altered quite a bit during the 80s from the beginning to that that sort of 87 time. I mean, you know, I know it's a bit sort of simplistic, but I mean, there was the mainstream charts with the, that production sound, but then on the, the other kind of alternative scene, we had the, I would refer to the indie world, which between 83 to 87, which was kind of a major moment. It was also the years of the Smiths. Some, there was definitely a bit of a scene and then there was a, a shift again. I think every five years, there's a new wave of 16, 18 year olds appear and they kind of right. want their own sound and those bands who've been together for five years are often starting to it's starting to get a bit tricky to keep the marriage together so to speak and sort of 87 period there was definitely this move away from a lot of those kind of indie bands and there was a lot there was also that introduction in this country of ecstasy that came along and then suddenly this this soundtrack changed to sort of that I suppose more rave but then on the other hand you had people like my bloody valentine and the swans and we also had sonic youth so with band of susans being in america what was that you know what was that kind of shift like during the 80s because obviously things had there was the hair metal there was the sort of the charts there was madonna but there was also you know quite a strong underground scene wasn't there oh yeah and I, well, for one thing, I remember Sonic Youth, because we were signed to Blast first, and suddenly all the journalists kept asking us about Sonic Youth as if, because, you know, they made really simplistic comparisons because we were both on Blast first, we both had a, you know, female bass player, and we both uh, kind of had these connections to Reese Chatham and Glenn Branca that somehow we were... Uh, similar when in fact our music was really really different and I think it annoyed them and it also annoyed us to be kind of lumped, lumped together but I do re I mean they were a really interesting band like really even in the early days before they were signed to Blast First but I do remember when they first went to the UK which is when Paul brought them over and and they, they played some really important gigs one at the ICA and they got some great reviews and of course everybody in New York read all of the British music papers so when they came back what used to be like a gig at CBGB's that was half full when they came back there were lines around the block you know people trying to see them suddenly they were famous mm. and that really big 
shift when sort of indie music became like like big and and not only in your little city scene but connected to the UK. I think Blastverse was really important for connecting up um, the British scene and the American scene because they had so many American bands. Yes. And I thought, and also we, we being, you know, as you know, like a little tiny country, um, and also we had these kind of nav- uh, people who, I suppose, had, uh, were the uh, gatekeepers in, in a way. You know, we had John Peel, and that particular right. show was huge, and it was on Radio yeah. One, and so I'm, people like me would record it on our trusty TDK D90 cassette, and then we had three weekly music papers with a huge circulation. Same was. Melody Maker Sounds and NME and, and and there was Record Mirror. So things kind of could quickly sort of like go ping and it just goes the next day, you know, everybody in the UK and also every city and town in the in the UK would have an indie alternative night. And I think it was there was something very exotic when you're an indie kid in the UK at this time, you know, looking at something far away and having this kind of a man you know like oh wow you know anything from new york is going to be amazing it doesn't matter we've already bought we've already bought into it and it's going to be really obscure and tricky so in a way that kind of gives i think a lot of american bands that kind of instant like wow we're really famous here you know everyone knows us and i think because of that desperation to to sort of want to discover the next thing and john peel was always that great gatekeeper really so i think when you know the band remember uh, when hope against hope our first um, album came out and it was Hope Against the song Hope Against Hope was single of the week in Melody Maker and John Peel played it and people sent us cassettes because they would record the John Peel show every week on their cassette you know, they, <laughs> and that someone recorded it and sent it to us and so we had the cassette John yes. Peel talking about us and playing I mean that was one of the greatest greatest uh, moments for us almost as good as uh, meeting Leo Fender which we did later on yes did you um how did you get signed to Blast first by the way we just sent we made an EP Uh, we we learnt we wrote and learnt four songs and then we recorded those four songs and then we made an EP and we sent it to different labels, and uh, one of which was Bless First, and it, it got in touch. Somebody from New York who knew Paul really liked the record and kind of gave us a good word. Yes, I mean it should check. Said said to him because he didn't always listen to stuff that was sent to him, but this person uh, said check this out, you really should check this band out. And then he came over to New York and met us, met me and Robert. And um, that's how we met. Fantastic. I mean, at that time, there was sort of certain labels kind of were surfing the zeitgeist, really, weren't they? And I guess a few people can keep it going, but it's quite hard to sort of keep that 
on the edge. I mean, bizarrely, John Peel, I think, was one of those people who could just seem to always be looking for that next thing. But I think it's quite an exhausting process, which often we, you know, eventually get tired and think, I can't do this anymore. So when, as, as the band developed, I did notice, uh, having sort of been watching lots of clips, you rehearsing in the studio, doing overdubs for absolutely ages actually i mean did you enjoy the process of being in you know in the band sort of creating different soundscapes look at, but, uh, we rehearsed in the studio well you were doing overdubs it's on youtube the band of susans i think there was lo- yeah, lots yeah, of a bunch of stuff up there right i don't really like that much so i'm not sure what's there but we we didn't rehearse in the studio but we did do a lot of overdubs. I, I think our philosophy was, like, say, very different from somebody like Steve Albini, who became a good friend of ours as a fellow label mate. But we weren't that interested in capturing our live sound in the studio so much as we were interested in using the studio as an instrument, like doing something quite studio specific with with our arrangements and then when we played live and even though it was the same song it, it the approach was slightly different on how to, how to play that song so yes. we did have a we had three guitars that that was band of students three guitars bass and drums but we didn't have the conventional rhythm and lead kind of thing at all and sometimes it was three three layered guitars, each playing a simple riff or rhythm that interlocked in a certain way. And then Robert would often add extra parts in the studio um, on top of that. And we, we were interested in, well, like, for instance, the song Hope Against Hope is basically just an E chord the whole way through. It doesn't have any conventional harmonic development the way, you know, a classic pop song would. Yeah. Chord changes. The, the momentum comes from the vertical structure of how things are layered and the rhythms and how it gets his propulsiveness from from that. And um, that that was kind of, a like I said, an extension of the kind of things we were doing in Reese Chatham's band. So uh, the studio was a way to explore that even further. That's why we were we often added a lot of overdubs and did that and did that process stay the same throughout the the sort of the band's life um well we always really loved working in the studio um i would say yes essentially yes i mean there were there were certain songs that were a bit more chord progression driven Mm mm-hmm because um, we wanted to write songs like that too, and they, they didn't have that intense layering maybe. So we did do songs like that, but in general, um, we, saw, we, we saw the studio like making a record as a kind of completely different sort of art project than playing live. And, and really enjoyed the, the studio process. Yes. And so I always loved mixing too. That was one of my favorite things was just 
working on the mix and trying different things. And um, but but as far as we we didn't ever rehearse in the studio really because we didn't have the money. We we went in very prepared. Like we we all we didn't invent parts in the studio. Right. You know we got a really bright idea to 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 add something to what we already had, but we kind of had the song in mind already, you know, all the songs before we went in, the, the basic structure of it. And I already kind of knew that what bass line I was going to play, even though obviously I, it was a little different every time, but I had a sense of it. And the vocals too, I, w- I would generally, if, if I was doing vocals, I would already have figured out the vocals. I wouldn't like make up vocals in the studio. Yes. We, just, we didn't have the money or the time to, you know, do that. So, so what when when sort of composing different numbers, what was what was the kind of the starting point? Was it the vocal or was it the sort of the the soundscape? It it really was different all the time. And Robert and I wrote together, but we also wrote separately. Like um, there are certain songs like. Elizabeth's Tried is one that I I sort of conceived of and it started with a bass part and I really could just play that song on bass because I use I chords in a kind of arpeggiated things, picked parts and chords and that was the, the foundation of it and the vocals and then the guitars were we sort of figured out the guitar arrangement around it. But there are other other times where Robert would would write a kind of instrumental thing and like have quite a clear structure, which was always a bit wonky. He never wrote anything conventionally. Like he would he would he would always change chords when you wouldn't expect it him to and add he just kind of went with the flow and then he would overdub something on top of it. He's just really kind of he's a great bass player too. Mm. Wrote a of bass parts which I ended up learning how to play because I in the beginning I couldn't all I could play was the E string and that was about it (laughs) but as 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 it went along I developed my own style and everything but in the beginning um you know I was a total starter and uh it was all about rhythm for me until I developed my own style um so anyway sometimes he would he would write a chord progression make a tape and uh, we worked with four-track cassette as our kind of writing tool. And he would just give it to me, and he said he would say, "See if you have any ideas. Figure out some vocals for this." And and I would come up with a melody and lyrics, and come up with a vocal. And it would always be like totally different from what he might have done. Right. But. But somehow we came up with some really great songs by combining our two approaches. Other times, like, he might write lyrics, but he he didn't know what to do with them, and I would come up with a melody, but I would sing his lyrics, not my lyrics. And, you know, it, it, it really varied. And did but you... because, you know, he's my closest friend in the world. He still is my closest friend in the world. So we, we had... We had a real symbiosis, I guess you could say. And did you find lyric writing 
Did it come quite easily or did you have to sort of work on it quite quite a lot? Uh, I'd say it, I worked on it a lot, but it didn't, it came, it came naturally to me. Yes. And, that's, and, and as the band progressed, did the dynamic within the group change much? I was sort of remembering over, you know, like I suppose at the wintertime, watching, watching the Beatles' eight-hour documentary on Let It Be, which, you know, Peter Jackson put together, um, you know, that process of a band sort of sitting there sort of trying to work out how to put together the, the next album within a month. I just wondered what it was like with your combo where as, as as the years started to go and you've got a couple of albums you know under yeah. it, did, it did evolve part of the thing was at the very very beginning there was me robert and ron who were really close old friends and then um two other susans who um both play guitar who were real beginners on guitar and they were really close friends of Robert's and now close friends of mine too, but they were both friends of Robert's who wanted to learn to play guitar. And this, this was like perfect for Robert because he could just, because they wouldn't, they weren't like guitar hero type players who would be really bored just playing a simple part. Yes. Just wanted to be in a band. So Robert would say, well, just, try playing this rhythm and he would put the guitar in, in an open E tuning so you didn't have to finger any chords and uh, hit it with this fork, you know, and just let it ring and use this rhythm and see how that sounds. And then he would play something on top of it. And the other uh, guitarist also named Susan would, you know, play something different that like a simple little melodic riff or something that that's how it started. But, once we were signed to Blast First and we began to tour, neither of them were able to stay in the band because they had other commitments. One, mm. one uh, artist and is now like a really interesting writer on art. And the other one, Susan Lyle, wanted to be a costume designer and she's now a really famous costume designer for films. So they, they had their own... Project. So we had to, we replaced them fairly early on. And then those two guitar slots kind of changed a couple of times before, you know, as it went on. So there was kind of a core group of me and Ron and Robert who were all from the same high school in Buffalo. Yeah. And the other two is kind of Justin. And one of them, one of the guitarists was Paige Hamilton, who went on to form Helmet. Right, of course, yes. But when he joined, when he auditioned for Band of Susans, you could tell, like, he, he, he managed to convince us, and we really needed to find someone quickly. He was a good player, he was, but he managed to convince us that he wouldn't be bored playing what we wanted him to play. Right. But he really was terribly bored. Like, he, he'd gone, he had a master's degree in, like, pop music, you know, from... The Manhattan College of Music, like he he was really bored, and if he wasn't playing like ninth and eleventh and sustained, you know, he he liked that's what he liked. That was his his thing, and, and he just couldn't believe like we wanted him to play an E chord <laughs> you know, for ten minutes, like. And so once we went on tour, he could you could tell he was really pretty pretty bored, and 
he wanted to form his own band. So, well, we had fun with him. We went on a tour with Wire. Our very first yes really tour was opening for Wire in America, and he was on that tour. He was he was a lot of fun, but he he was he kind of he kind of uh, faked us out a little bit by <laughs> saying he didn't want to do this, but actually he didn't. He just kind of use this as a stepping stone to his next next thing. So. Yes. And can you remember much about your John Peel session, which I think you did in about 1992? Was that done well, at the Maida Vale Studios, or was this elsewhere? Uh, yeah, I guess it was. We did a couple Peel sessions. Yes. Did you have the famous Dale Griffith, who's the, the Mott the Hoople drummer producing? Yeah, we did. And what was your experience like there? It was it was brilliant. He was really grumpy. <laughs> it was quite funny. Though. We had a brilliant time. We we were over the moon to be there, and uh, and meeting John was like crazy. It was we just couldn't believe that we were meeting him. And he you know, said how much. And I was lucky enough then after I moved to the UK, um, and. Paul and I got married, so I I saw him a number of times after that, and really got to know him. And he was he was absolutely brilliant. Went we went to his house and sat in the room that you know that was, he was surrounded by records where he recorded all his shows and everything. So yes, we um we had a brilliant time. But that you know we we had to do those really kind of quickly. And we'd, we couldn't fart around and do all our overdubs. We had to, like, really be on it. I remember doing Child of the Moon. We, that we, we did a cover of Child of the Moon that we did on a Peel session. And um, I think because we had to be so focused, uh, it really kind of brought out a kind of intensity. I remember Robert did a, a brilliant... Uh, guitar solo on that and normally didn't do solos that yes. wasn't really part of our thing to do solos I mean, but he is a brilliant guitarist and he did an amazing solo on that when we did the the studio version of child of the moon in the in the, the solo section i played the ocarina solo from wild thing right on on a wooden recorder and then we we put it forward and backwards that that's the solo on our recording. <laughs> so, oh, that's nice. That's yeah. very good. So when you came to record um, Here Comes Success, what was the atmosphere like with the band at this stage? Because this was like you'd been together nearly 10 years and this was quite a, a major moment, wasn't it, this, this particular release? I just wondered what it was. And you'd also had quite a few changes. What was it like sort of um, gearing up for that particular recession it was, it was exciting, but it was also a bit elegiac because we knew it was going to be our last record. Because I was moving, I was going to move to the UK, and that would be the end of the band. Yes. Um, so that was part of the joke of the title. <laughs> 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 that uh, that was our last record, you know, and it. It was called Here Comes Success. You know, obviously the reference, Here Comes My Chinese Rug, and and uh, 
you know, my fancy car and everything, you know, it was, it was like we didn't have any of those things, but um, of course we felt successful anyway because we've made records we're really proud of. But yes. That, that was our joke. That was our little joke. That, did it feel, but, um, was it a big decision to have that move or were you getting kind of the, the need to sort of move on as, as the sort of 90s progressed? Um, you mean to end the band or for me to move to... Well, UK? I suppose both, really, to sort of um, end the band. I wouldn't have moved to UK except that I, Paul and I had fallen in love and it became it had become just really difficult to live in two different cities. Um, he would just come to New York whenever he could. And, but, you know, it was always, it was kind of stressful to be apart so much. So yes. They were great reunions, but the reunions were excellent, but just couldn't keep going on like that. Um, but if I had stayed in New York, I'm sure the band would have stayed together. I didn't want to end the band particularly, but I also didn't feel like it could really keep going. Um... Uh, when I was living in the UK, I, I felt that that kind of meant that I should rethink what I was doing and and do some new things. Yeah. Um, and it it certainly the the band had changed. Like for one thing, my role in it had changed. I mean, just from my own perspective, like I started going great. You know, I get to be in a band. I get to play an instrument. I don't know how to play. This is really fun. This is exciting. You know, it's, it felt really freeing not to be trained on an instrument. You know, even though when I played the flute, so many things that I did, the kind of music that I played, it was always you're always trying to find a way to make sounds that you weren't, you know, trained to play. Like yes. my classical training was about discipline rather than what I was playing. So I was always trying to get away from that. But to actually playing an instrument that I really had no idea how to play um, and sort of making it up, making up my own style was tremendously freeing. But as time went on, then I got better at it. And then, of course, I had more ideas of what to do with it. And I wanted to write and arrange songs. I had ideas of what the other, you know, what the guitar should do and how I wanted to structure things. And then, of course, when I started writing lyrics, I I would sing my own lyrics just because I knew how I wanted it to sound, even though I don't consider myself a singer, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so my role changed. And as time went on, I, you know, I used to just sing backups on a few things and maybe one song. And as time went on, Robert and I kind of had equal, equal lead role I guess in singing so so I became more more of a co-front person or whatever that is yes um, and you know that didn't that wasn't a problem between us but it it I guess it was making me just think more and more of things that I wanted to do that I would be excited about doing Yes. And uh, so when I did move to the UK, well, then we put out one more record uh, that was a combination of 
instrumentals and a compilation of things from the different albums that we've done before. Was that Wired for Sound? Yeah. Right. That, that was a triple vinyl. That was kind of a culmination of everything. And we did do one last tour after I was already living in London. We were touring on Here Comes Success and Wired for Sound. So it didn't, it just didn't end like the moment I moved to London. But we knew Here Comes Success was going to be our last studio album. Yes. And as, and then, you know, I did start uh, thinking of new things to do. I, I did bring some of that experimental sort of the classics of American experimental music over there and organized some concerts of this group I called The Brood. That was people from rock and electronics and um, all different backgrounds in music, but we would play classics of American experimental music like, like Grease Chatham, John Cage, Phil Niblock, um, Lamont Young, um, it was, we, we did a concert at the South Bank Center and then another one at the Barbican. Right. LCA. Um, so that, so Justine Frischman played in that and Robert Gray, the drummer from Wire and um, Scanner, um, the Finnish guys from Pansonic. You know, it was, it was kind of a motley crew. Blimey. <laughs> and then I, I formed a, an all bass band called Big Bottom, that was, you know, a Spinal Tap yes. joke <laughs> band, you know, that I kept talking about, like I was going to someday, you know, I was always telling Reese Chatham, actually, because his, his band was all guitars, I said, well, someday I'm going to have an all bass band. And because we always watched Spinal Tap before I we went on tour to get in the mood, that's going to be called Big Bottom. So, but I actually did, did form it. Um, Paul was was running this little club upstairs at the garage for for a couple of years. I think it was ninety five and ninety six or ninety four and ninety five. That was a kind of art, music, collision kind of club. And um, Merspo was going to play Japanese noise. Right. I, and whoever was going to open for him couldn't make it. And so this was like three weeks before. And he said, you know that big bottom thing you always said you were going to do? Why don't you do that? Yes. So I recruited one friend of mine who, who could play bass. And then I recruited three um, visual artists, people that I had met who I knew wanted to be in a band, you know, because it's fun to be in a band. So... So I just taught them how to play bass, and we had uh, like a semicircle of Ampeg SVTs. And I did this 20-minute arrangement, which I called VPL, and um, that was the beginning of Big Bottom. And after that, I, I met Michael Clark. Right, the ballet. And he and we started working together, and he choreographed a whole show to. Big Bottom, and I made a new piece for him, and we, we toured together for a few years. Fantastic. I saw Michael Clark with the Margie Smith in the fall in the 80s doing, you know, I'm a Curious Orange. I think he 
I think we saw quite a lot of bottom as well, didn't we, during that period? Did you enjoy? Did you enjoy the freedom of what happened after the after sort of moving, stepping out of the band, or, or the, you know, not being in the yeah. band anymore? Was there was there a sense of anything was pop- possible? I I enjoyed it just because because it was a new and it was like created new problems to solve and. And I was just at that period in my life where I was interested in new challenges and new new things. Like I really missed Robert and I missed the band, but um, that's just you know that's not where my life was going then. So I was I was excited about doing new things. Yes. And uh, after Big Bottom, I started. I got invited to do. I still was doing the flute for certain things. I, I played at the White Cube Gallery at John Cage performance and a piece of mine mm-hmm. and as piece and that was a collaboration with Michael Clark and this artist Kareth Wynn Evans who was also one of the artists in Big Bottom who I had recruited for Big Bottom um, and someone who heard that invited me to make sound for a big art installation in Lyon at the Museum of Contemporary Art and that was a real challenge it was it was meant needed to be the length of an exhibition so three months long I'd make a sound piece that was three months long yes um, I had never really worked with computer before in fact we had just started kind of using pro tools and things and mixing the last album we worked on but I didn't do it myself. I just saw it being done. Um, so in order to do this, it was uh, buying a laptop and learning, or just starting with GarageBand and learning how to make things and process sound in, in the way that I wanted to and layer things and ended up making this big piece. It was like a big uh, exploded form pop song. So I, I took the idea that this was, this was supposed to be 96 days. So I thought of those as bars instead of days and divided it up so that there was an intro of four days, and a verse of 16 days, and then a chorus of eight days, and then verse two of 16 days, and a bridge. And you know it was, it was constructed like a big pop song. And then each of the three verses kind of used references to different genres so the first one was easy listening the second was blues and country and the third was rock and heavy metal but it it, it kind of worked on a different time scales so the 16 days was like 16 bars of the first verse it was actually the chord progression of the girl from ipanema but in slow drums right so the chord so a chord change, a chord, if a chord lasts for two bars in Girl from Ipanema, it would last for two days in my installation. So it was these drones of that chord. And then all these layers on top were all different snippets and references to easy listening instruments or 
bits of melodies and all these things layered on top. And, and I invited a lot of different people to follow little sets of instructions I gave them and they would make recordings and send them to me. So it was kind of building up my arsenal of uh, material to mix however I wanted to mix. And that was really fun because uh, then I got to really know Alan Vega from Suicide. Oh, fantastic. He did some really great stuff for me. Or I would just, I would play him something to listen to and then have him improvise over the top of it. And I would give him like three phrases or sounds that he had to use and nothing else. And he would just use those and improvise. And then I would give the same thing to somebody else and they would do something totally different. And then I would mix those things together. I made this great uh, duet between Kim Gordon and Alan Vega. Um, but they had they had never met. Right. They just f- followed my little scores or instructions and made a recording and sent it to me. And then I, I mixed them together and made them, created a duet between them. That sort of thing. God, that must have been so, that must have been so satisfying. It, it was a lot of fun, and it really changed completely the way that I worked because then I realized, hey, I don't have to play everything live on an instrument. I mean, I'm not betraying the the beauty of the band, but I also love the idea that I could just sit at my desk and make stuff. And then, of course, then I. I started making I made film soundtracks and installations and you know, that's kind of where I've been going since then is kind of sound installations, art projects either on, of my own or collaboration with visual artists. Yes. And uh, sound for this. Have you found have you found the, pro- the the progress of your creative journey? Has that sort of coincided with a sort of any slightly spiritual or sense of sort of time passing? Because often these things, sometimes I I I've sort of recognise, um, yes, there's sometimes there's a relationship that one starts to have. Because I just noticed with with a lot of the the singing piece that you had in Newcastle. It sort of had a, a quite an earthiness, but also that sense of the yearly cycle, as we kind of mentioned earlier. And I just wondered if you were also started to sort of get in touch with other emotional or f- spiritual states, really. I think when I started to spend more time in Ireland, um, which happened in the late 90s, because at the time, sort of post-Big Bottom, I was... I didn't want to form a new band, but I I had fun playing bass and kind of Big Bottom led into certain people becoming aware of me, more aware of me as a bass player, I guess. So I got invited to play with um, Susie Sue and John Cale on this American tour that they did. And that was loads of fun. But then somebody who saw that or knew about that recommended me to to Nick Cave because he wanted to do a project. Uh, he wanted to take a break from the Bad Seeds and do what he called a little band. Right. It was mainly a solo project for him on the grand piano, but having a few little friend friend players with him. 
So um, I ended up doing that. It was supposed to be just a, a one-off or maybe a couple of gigs that was for the, the um, Royal Festival Hall. Um, he was doing this thing called the Lecture of a uh, Secret Life of a Love Song. Right. And um, that's initially what he wanted this little band for. And it was me uh, on bass and him on grand piano and Warren Ellis and Jim White from the Dirty Three. And we we played our first show in Dublin as a warm-up show. Then we did the South Bank, and then Nick really enjoyed that and um, wanted to keep doing it. And so we ended up touring quite a bit in America and around Europe. Um, but we ended up playing, one of the places we played was this outdoor festival in an estate outside of Skibbereen in West Cork in, in the south of Ireland. And there had been a festival there for a few years that was kind of uh, Jarvis and Patti Smith and uh, Lou Reed and um, Nick played every year in some form. Mm -hmm. So that was 1999. And when we we played, then I realized that Ireland is great and I want to spend more time here. And, and so um, we have been ever since having kind of a part of our time spent here. And uh, this that's kind of when I met this, not long after that, a, a local filmmaker and ended up making the sound for a film about this guy, Tim Robinson, who was a map maker mm -hmm. and wrote a lot about landscape and Connemara. And just reading those books and kind of working with the maps and thinking about how to make sound out of the landscape, like almost like using a landscape as a score. Um, that that started me on a whole new tangent. And I suppose it is a bit of a spiritual thing. Um, the connection to the land and, and uh, as I then went on to another project also at, in Newcastle in 2014. I made a whole piece based on geology, on cross-section geology of the coasts of Northumberland. Right. And it was called Sound Strata of Coastal Northumberland. And I, I did research there for a whole year on Northumbrian folk music and history and used this incredible uh, diagram, which I had found in the archive of the Natural History Museum that had been drawn, hand-drawn in 1838. And it was about a foot high and about 40 feet long. All these pieces of parchment uh, linked up and hand-drawn and hand-colored. And it was like as if you were in the sea looking at the coast of Northumberland, sliced so that you could see all layers of rock, right. and then the extrusions of rock above the surface, and what kinds of rock they were. You know, there was a key for the different kinds of rock. And so I used this as a score and built this whole piece on different instrumental sounds, kind of correlating, correlating to the different kinds of rock that were like fiddle and brass band sounds from 
the idea of the coal, coal seams and Northumbrian pipes and border pipes. And then as you got closer to Scotland, um, island pipes and it was it was a real labor of love and it was a real connection to uh, everything I was interested in, which was like the physical landscape and building these kind of time based. Um, I started calling it sonic geology right. because it was like these deep time layers of slow moving chords with as you got kind of closer to the surface almost of your consciousness, like faster moving snippets of melody and suggestions of folk tunes and things that were all kind of moving on different levels and different uh, speeds. So it was, it was like, like making a, a sonic version of what I felt of the landscape that also involved the history and the folk tunes and the, the people that I had gotten to know yes. all kind of woke into this this texture. Did and, you work uh, with Catherine Tickell? Because I know she's um, an, a, a Northumbrian I, I pipe her, player. Yeah. yeah, she's a brilliant player. I, I worked with um, a colleague of hers, Andy May, who's also a brilliant Northumbrian piper, but I didn't meet her yet. Yes. In fact, I spoken to her about being part of it and then she she was going on tour or something but Andy did all the piping and he was absolutely brilliant. Did you find that kind of interesting that different parts of where you've lived have have a relationship with a particular instrument did that sort of absolutely so interested in that and I'm, I've always been interested in folk music um, and you know how how certain things emerged out of a certain culture and both the, like the subject, literal subject of, of folk songs, but also the, the instruments, how they ended up in the way those instruments are played. There's a specific like sort of fiddle style for the castle area that, uh, is I didn't know anything about until I started studying all this stuff. And also uh, been incredibly interested in how um, songs travel. And when I, when I was a teenager in, in America, I went through this whole phase. I remember we had to do a, a, a project about the depression. And so I decided I would do it on Woody Guthrie. So, that involved going to the downtown library in Buffalo where they had this huge collection of Library of Congress recordings. And you could sit there with headphones and actually have a turntable and listen to these discs. And, and I got so mesmerized by that when the project was finished, I, I think for a whole month, I just didn't go to school. I just got on the bus and my mom and I got on the bus and I just went to the library and didn't go to school. <laughs> and I just listened to the Alan Lomax recordings for a month, and that was huge influence on me. And um, in the as preparation for a project which had never never come to completion, but I was wanted to do a string quartet, and um, I wanted it based on fiddle Appalachian fiddle and singing uh, structures. 
and I got this fellowship to go to Kentucky, Korea, Kentucky for a month and do research in the Appalachian Sound Archive. And um, I got really deep into it there and it was, it was so interesting to think about songs that had traveled from Scotland or England or Ireland and come over with settlers and then what happened to those songs and sometimes the version that came over with with settlers um, was a more ancient version than the one that I I knew from the British versions. Right. Because, because they hadn't evolved as much because they were in these these uh, very contained communities. That, and again, geology, the geology of the Appalachian Mountains kept those tunes in a very concentrated area, and therefore they didn't evolve in the same way. It's really, really fascinating. Yes. And I got to oh, um, Shirley Collins. Yes, dear Shirley, I know. She's brilliant, and she wrote, of course, she wrote that beautiful book, America Over the Water, about sound collecting with Alan Lomax. And she's a real musicologist. She's a real expert on... on these tunes and what happens to them when they went to America and you know what what happens to them in different parts of Ireland and the UK and, uh, so it's all these threads somehow came together in that that Newcastle project right all these interested in there were drones there was history there was geology there was um, folk tunes and uh, there was even I used rhythms of clog dancing and things like that and, um, I know it's fascinating that actually things I forgot about clog dancing it's like these things only happen in certain regions and it's a very kind of yeah it's very specific to a particular place isn't it really you know we don't have clog dancing in East Anglia but then I was fascinated because I started getting interested in sort of different periods of dance and music and things like I suppose the there was the Cayley dance and then before that you had those other I suppose they refer to them as the the Darcy dance but the music with that is quite amazing and then I started being really curious like and how far you can go back for you just don't know what people used to listen to there must, you know, there, there must be music, but we have no idea what... There must be making some sounds, probably percussion, but it would just be, I mean, just amazing. Just imagine what that must have been like, you know. So we just sort of pick it up at some part of the human race, but there was that music being made before that, which would have been boggling, yeah. really. Yeah, I guess drums, some kind of drums, and probably some kind of flute, because you can, you know, have a hollow bone and make a little... Yes. ...sound and... Like in the way I've gotten, you know, I've sort of come back around to liking the flute again. Certain things I've. It's probably quite ancient. So in the last couple of years, and then what you're going to next? What what's what has been the main project for you um, that you've focused on? Well, one big project after the Newcastle project or Northumbria project. I worked on with an Irish artist, Jessie Jones. She was chosen to represent Ireland in the Venice Biennale. Right. For 2017. And um, she made a big installation that involved two big screens. She made a film, and these two screens were kind of uh, 
interacting with, with each other. And the main uh, character in her film was played by this actress, Olwyn Foray, who I had met a few years before that when she was doing a, a James Joyce project that I was involved in. Um, she's one of those Irish artists that I have met that have made me uh, excited about spending time here. But she's mm. just so interesting. Um, so she, she's an actress. So she was in the film and I made all the sound, this kind of seven channel surround sound. And that was, that was a huge project that then toured to different venues. Um, and then I started working with another Irish artist, Alva Navrian. And I think when we first started talking, I was in Scotland for, for that show in Glasgow. Um, in, in March of this year, I went to the V&A in Dundee because there was a big exhibition of uh, uh, Michael Clark, a retrospective about Michael Clark. And I had done a an installation there about Big Bottom. Is this the one that Francis from the Vaselines was part of? Not the project, but talking about it. Was there some sort of conference? Or have I got that mixed up? About Michael Clark? No, about you. I thought Francis from Francis McGee from the Vaselines, I was just looking at something and her name came up that they were doing a project with you or had done... I've got that wrong, haven't I? <laughs> um, then I went to to Glasgow where this installation uh, by this exhibition by Alvin Vrian was and that also had a big film installation that I had done the sound for um, and she's somebody that I really connect with and um, love working with because her her approach is also kind of slow and deep mm -hmm. better way to describe it but it's um that's kind of what i do is uh, really get kind of deep into a subject and I, i'm i'm interested in kind of that uh way of approaching time when you can both feel it, whatever you've created, you can feel like you're right in the middle of it and you, you're almost standing still and, and the sound is, is like a physical object. Mm -hmm. Like there's sort of teetering between like stasis and sound being solid. Or if you just maybe tilt your head a certain way or your ears a certain way, then you start noticing all the little details, all the the things that are moving fast at the same time. That, that's, could be a description of Phil Neblock's music to kind of circle back to what we were talking about. Somebody who I, whose music I first heard when I was a teenager and it's still like a huge influence on me, but that's kind of the way his music works is that it's almost like a, it's a physical presence in the room and it's, you can sort of feel right on the verge of being like standing still in time and the sound being like all around you and sort of solid and also then also if you just change the way you, you're listening you're you're hearing all kinds of 
incredible detail and overtones and shifting and sparkling and and uh, flowing things happening and that to me is like a like sound as you know a natural power that so uh, i guess i'm getting kind of um, grounded literally you know in sonic geology as yes because i was listening to is it this one called um morse code mix was this what you had done with Phil. Did you make the video with that? Uh, that that was just a celebration of his 88th birthday. That was just something I made for his his birthday. But that that really is a is a mix of something that I made for the soundtrack of that film I was telling you about. That right. About Tim Robinson. Yeah. His maps. That's I, I use Morse code I, to uh, compose, which may sound odd, but um, I would take a word, translate it into Morse code. So it's a series of short sounds, spaces, and long sounds, mm -hmm. and then play that up. I'll use it. I use MIDI. I use a, a computer to make it, but make make a line that's playing long and short sounds with spaces. There's there's a very specific way the spaces work as well in most code. Yeah. The length of the spaces. And then um, then I duplicate that line on a number of tracks, but then I shift the starting point. So they're not in unison, so they're starting at all different times and it makes this kind of polyphonic texture. And that's that's how I made that piece. Right. Talking Yes. It's, um, it's the Irish word for river, which is awan, A-B-H-A-I-N-N. -N. Oh. Spelled out Morse code, layered multiple times, acoustic guitar, and, and this, the entrances are all staggered, so it creates this kind of texture. Yes, it was and very... I was saying it's, it's very transcendental. Well, I, I'm really interested in... Uh, creating moods with music but not by intentionality if, if that makes any sense I don't I'm not interested in expressing myself or you know like I would never ever say well I really want to make a, a sad piece or you know I just I'm interested in materials and this maybe kind of goes back to visual art in the very early days of my mother mm -hmm. saying you know here here's a three crayons and you know one piece of paper and uh, a rock you know make something out of this and you can't have anything left over you know it's just you, you choose your materials mm -hmm. and figure out how you want to organize them or in, in in my mind you're almost like you're finding a way to let those materials speak and you kind of unleash, you create a structure to unleash something. And if if it works, then there's kind of there's a kind of poetry or like a natural force that emerges. But it's I feel like I'm sort of finding a way to unleash it rather than imposing something that I want it to say. Right. It sounds really odd. <laughs> 
get what I mean? Yeah, I do. And do you I know? And do you know when a project? And do you know when a project's done? What's that? Do you know when the project? When you know that that's that you've mm. exhausted yeah. the resource? Yeah, I mean that's that's the one area where I sort of impose my taste. I I decide like if it's done or if I like it, if it's successful or not. I, you know, I might try something and I don't I don't use it, or I might like use that process I was just describing with the Morse code, and I would shift things around in different ways and think that sounds terrible. Yeah. It keep trying until I go, oh, now something's happening. And and it, it becomes something. It 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 morphs into something. But it feels like a like a natural process. Yes. Blimey. It all comes back. Your mother had such an amazing effect on your creative journey, really, didn't she? It's quite an interesting yeah. The way that's come together. I um I think about her a lot because she she turned ninety in uh, twenty twenty, and then she was diagnosed with cancer very soon after. And I was able to go back to Buffalo and be with her for the last seven months of her life, and I, I really felt I was able to tell her all these things and to spend a lot of time with her and. Um, look at old photos and really uh, kind of almost review all the things that were important to us. I'm one of six kids, so we were all doing that with her, but it was it was really great to be able to tell her all these things and uh, remember all the, the things she did for us and, and taught us. God, that must have been the most precious seven months of your life. That was amazing. Was really great. And it's really only... You know, in these later years, now that I'm becoming an elder, <laughs> that I, I get asked to give talks, and I, I st- I've started thinking about how all these weird, all, all these threads of different things I've been interested in since I was a kid, that I haven't just been, you know, in one way you could look at my so-called career as just hopping from thing to thing, and very odd collection of projects but once I've had to kind of think about it and talk about it and give a, a lecture or something it made me realize that how many threads there are that come straight from you know when I was really young that that are still there things I'm interested in that I was interested in then and they keep emerging in different ways or kind of uh, connecting up with other things I'm interested in, in different ways it's just like reshuffling the material in, in different ways and new things emerge from it. Yes. So whether it's, uh, you know, some natural things, I, of course, I always collected rocks and fossils when I was a kid. I'm still, you know, had certain fascination with that. And drones, I was always interested in, the sound of drones and um, folk music, but of course, at the same time, Patti Smith and the Velvet Underground and Iggy Pop but then John Cage too, and you know, all these things have kind of, uh, certain things have risen to the top at different times of my life, but they're all kind of percolating along and, and all kind of feed into what I 
what I end up doing. So. Yes, well, there's, there's probably quite a lot of, when you look at it like that, there's probably quite a lot of consistency, but with certain moments where there's more baggage than others, but there's probably quite a quite a, a pure chord between the beginning to where you are now, which is quite, probably quite make you laugh, really. Yeah, it's, it's not something I ever was conscious of as I was going along, I, but now that I kind of look back, I can see like seams, you know, if you're back to the uh, geological metaphor, I see seams of different kinds of rock, you know, kind of yes, coming out and emerging and sinking down again. And I, th- I think there's also a temptation or, or a need when at certain times of your life, especially the 20s, you're trying to make everything a bit more complex and complicated and, I don't know, dramatic somehow and I think once with age you sort of can probably deal without all that drama and dramaticness and kind of chaos and just you know keep it a little more straightforward but then like you said you probably realize you've got this amazing thread from your beginning to where you are now and thought oh yes that's been quite interesting there's been a few little moments of kind of this and that but actually the the core is quite the same isn't it yeah I think something You've asked how I've changed. I think one thing I can say is I have gotten better at editing, like taking things away. Like I love going through the process of collecting, doing research. I really love doing research and collecting ideas and um, assembling a whole kind of library of things for a certain project. But then... At some point, you have to start taking things away and figure out what what stays. You know? And I've gotten a lot better at that, of being able to let things go. Yes. <laughs> and of course, I just you know keep it for some other project. It's all there. You now that you know, with computers, you can do that. But um, I'm much better at knowing and not minding losing things, you know, taking things away and, and um, finding the kernel, you know, finding the, the pure center and what, what really should, should stay. Yes. And just kind of, I mean, it's always a bit of a tricky one. <laughs> That's the sort of last question. But if you, if you were able to, and you might have just answered it, actually, you're, you're, if you were able to sort of mention or tell your 16-year-old self some sort of, word of advice or wisdom or just guidance is there anything that you would have just thought oh yes I would whisper that in their ear even if they ignored it I just wondered if there was anything you would have thought "Mm, yes there is a few things actually um well certainly I would I would encourage me to stick with my inclination at the time which was to to follow my heart follow my instincts and not get stuck in some kind of um, life plan that I felt was the correct one, you know, from, from society, you know, like I never, I really didn't have any interest at the time in like getting married and having kids and um, I just felt like, I needed to get out in the world and just kind of follow my my instincts and 
I didn't know how I would support myself, but I always found a way. You know, mm -hmm. then just basically don't lose your nerve and just, I would have said to myself, you know, kind of reinforce that, that impulse to, to do that and not to lose your nerve and, and to really follow your gut, gut instincts. Yes. Because uh, I think it's very easy, especially for women. And I, I do try to pass this on to, to young women, especially. Um, there is no secret, you know, thing that guys know how to do and that girls can't learn. You know, it's 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 hard sometimes, especially you know, as I'm older, like. When I was growing up, it, it kind of felt like that, like, oh, you're a girl, you can't do that. You know, it was just kind of given, it was a given. It's, luckily, my father wasn't like that, and I had an older brother who considered me his equal playmate when we were kids, and so I learned how to throw a football and a baseball, and I, w I was like equal to, equally involved in all the same things. and. It gave me a lot of confidence, I suppose, but like for instance, being in a band, like guys don't guys aren't born knowing how to play guitar and drums. <laughs> they just they go in their basement or their guitar the garage and they start thrashing around and and they figure it out. Mm. There's no like magic about it and girls can do the same thing. And it, the whole trick is and it's really folk music. You, you pass on, you learn something from somebody and then you pass it on or you adapt it for your own purposes. That's what folk music is. It's like um, there's certain structures and conventions that get passed on and not in a, you know, a formal setting, but an informal setting. And you, you teach each other things and then you, you put your own stamp on it and your own twist and then make something original. And to not have the fear that, oh, I can't do that. How do I do that? I don't know how to do that. You just figure it out. That's, that's really important. To not be cowed by technology um, or be feeling like you need a certain technique or education, screw it. Like, just do it. Yes. <laughs> but they, 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 but so much has changed in your life's lifetime, hasn't it? I mean, you must have seen such a shift of kind of attitudes. And um, when you look back to the '60s, especially, and what the attitudes were yes. like then, both in you know every field, every walk of life, you know, music, art business, work, sport, you know, women women weren't even allowed to do the marathon because people thought they weren't capable. Now w loads of people do the Ironman challenge and you're thinking, oh, yes, you yeah. know. But And you, I don't think any different. But then when I listened to a documentary about a woman who had to sneak into the Boston Marathon and was, you know, people were trying to sort of get in her way to stop her, you think, wow, that was 1968, I think. And it was just, it's very strange, isn't it, that... The step for wives, you know. On the other hand, it's not a straight line. There, there are things, there are, the, unbelievably, there are struggles going on in society now that are exactly the same as, you know, when I was 
a teenager in 1972. It's it's shocking. I mean, women's, you know, what, what you thought would be, you know, there was Ms. Magazine and I had a women's studies group in high school and we were fighting all this stuff. And now, like, we're still fighting over abortion rights? It's unbelievable. Mm. Unbelievable. Banning, you know, banning um, books in American schools. Like, it's... Women's role in society has has changed leaps and bounds on one level, but on another, we're still like struggling for really fundamental rights. So it's it's never a, a continuum; it's never a straight line. It's and it's uh, it's made made tremendous progress, and certainly like music, it's kind of considered. There's nothing that women haven't done and are going to, I'm sure, be doing more and more. Yes, but there's always a strange agenda somewhere just under the surface that you have to be careful about. You can never be complacent, that's the thing, isn't it? Not at all. And, you know, there's still, you're totally, totally uh, typecasts a lot of times. I think a lot of girls have to struggle with that about... And, you know, I had to do the same. I Luckily, I was in a band with male friends and female friends, and it was kind of like beyond gender, really. It wasn't like I wasn't a girl singer. I just was the bass player who happened to be female who sang part of some of the time. Mm. My male friends weren't like that, and I kind of refused that paradigm. Um, but... You know, a lot of times we got asked by big labels like Sire, I think, I remember they wanted us to send send them a, a record, and they were really disappointed because they thought we were a girl band, like we weren't a girl band, so like, forget it. They weren't interested in the music, they were interested in the package, that kind of thing. So, Yes, you weren't going to be the Go-Go's or the Bangles, were you? <laughs> anyway. There's a, there's a lot of brave, brave girls on there who aren't going to let anybody hold them back. Yes, well, I did an interview with um, was it Toby Vale from Bikini Kills so um, last week, and um, she had an amazing story about being in a riot girl band in the early nineties. So uh, yes, it's um, the, but the fight always continues, doesn't it? So um, it never quite stops. But anyway, th- th- that's the good thing about being in nature. You can connect with something greater than everything else. And hopefully... I know you just... Are you in Ireland? At, you said you're in Ireland at the moment. Yeah, but I'm, I'm often in London as well. Yes. You get the big sky, though, don't you? You get to see the stars and the universe. And that's what matters, really, in life. It's... Uh walk out and touch the Milky Way just about. It's it's great. It's the most beautiful sight. Anyway, look, thank you ever so much for this. This has been amazing and um, incredible. You know, I'm so grateful. So thank you, Susan, for giving me the time for this interview. And um, if you want, I can always give you the link and um, you can have the link. Um, but anyway, I really appreciate this and it's been fantastic. So thanks again for this. But um I'll let you. Thank you. It was fun to talk to you. Yes, thank you. And take care and all the best for your next projects. I'll keep an eye out. Anyway, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview.
just in case you didn't know. Um, a massive thank you to Susan Stenger for giving me the time for that interview. One time member of the band of Susan's. Oh, yes, Band of Seasons, that's true. And um, also lots of other solo work as well, so do check out her various pages and sites. This has been David East or The C86 Show, as if you didn't know. You can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, keep it groovy, keep it nice, that's what we say. And also, all these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, it's true. Anyway, have a great week, stay safe.